emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. And welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, folks, our long-awaited best books of 2019. Ron, I always look forward to this show. Me too. And mostly because it's it's kind of a... a oftentimes a mishmash of stuff. And I, I think over the years, we have really changed this. At first, it was really best business books. And then we pretty much both decided that business books generally suck. So therefore, we had to expand our thinking. And we have business books that are in, involved in here, some other nonfiction, and occasionally even the, the fiction book now that gets gets thrown in, which I think is great. Yeah, me too. I, I'm, I'm over business books, so <laughs> this, that's, that is good. And, and, and just a note, go ahead, go. Yeah, it's just tough to narrow it down. You know, usually we do five each per show, and, and, and that's just really hard to cull through the list. So I'm hoping maybe we'll spend some time on the bonus episode talking about some other books that don't make the top five. Yeah, it, it is though. But I will say this: I, I think the my the number of books I'm getting much more selective. It's sort of like the the uh, the, the 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 Spinal Tap. Their appeal is more selective, you know. <laughs> yes, and my, yes. my, <laughs> my appeal my appeal for books is now more selective. In other words, I'm reading fewer books than I have in the past, but I get selective and I enjoy them more. And I think it's it's partially I'm going to blame Russ Roberts partially for it, but Russ Robertson and the whole podcast medium, which has, which has taken a, a considerable amount of what used to be reading time for me. Yeah, that, but, but well, at least Russ's podcasts and some others kind of, when he goes in depth, you don't necessarily feel like you have to read the book anymore and unless you really want to. I mean, he exposes you to so many different books and like off Russ's, I only buy the books that sound just really, really good that I really enjoyed the interview. Exactly. Exactly. So I have my top five ready, Ron, but I, how do you want to do this? You want to just give the top five or what? I don't, I forget what we've done in the past. You just want to each do number five. I think that's what we've done, right? Yeah. I think we do. We try and do one each per segment or something, you know, two each per segment, roughly give or take. Um, but let's start with the Franz, Kafka quote because that's how we launched off for the last few years and I, I just love this line from him he says I think we ought to read only the kind of books that wound and stab us if the book we are reading doesn't wake us up with a blow on the head what are we reading it for and I just love that and the books that I'm sure that you picked and that I picked did exactly that they slapped us uh you know across the head and and made us change our mind about something or change our behavior. And I, I think that's really powerful. The other thing I did, Ed, I'm not sure if you did this, but this was my criteria. I excluded books that I read last year where we interviewed the author about that book. 
Mm, nope. Sorry. My okay. list. No, that's fine. That's fine. But I did. <laughs> my that. list contains two, two, that's two fine. of them. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and I'm sure it was on my list too of like top dozen books or whatever, but I just concentrated on ones where we didn't interview the author about it. Yeah. And I think this might, might make it a little bit easier because the, the, the books that we, we have met the or interviewed the author or talked about the book, we can just quickly refer out, but, uh, and just make a quick comment. And I'll, and I'll start then, Ron, I'll, I'll t- sure. tell you my number five book, which was Chris Strickland's survivor's obligation. If for no other reason, than I'm particular about really good titles. I love when a book has a really good title. Survivor's Obligation is a great title because it's it's like, wait a minute, I got to think about that. Isn't it? Isn't <laughs> it right? Isn't it Survivor's guilt? Right. And he just turns that notion completely on its face, changes how you think about it, and it's it's just an absolutely incredible set of personal stories that just blew me away. Both 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 of their stories, both Chris and Joel's. Yeah, I, I don't know of anybody who has read that book and gotten back to us that just wasn't totally absorbed in it, couldn't put it down. It is literally one of those books you don't want to put down. You don't want to put it down. You want to find out what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's very compelling. And it is it, it is short enough that you can actually do that. You can You can read it in one sitting if you want. You can. And for those who have listened to Chris... He's been on now, what, twice, three times? I forget. Three times. I think three, three times, times. Yep. yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, you know about his ejection from the cockpit. Well, the book takes you through that entire 25 and a half second ride in that F-16, and you feel like you're just sitting there with him going through this. It's just so unbelievable. It just makes the hair on your neck stand up. It's, it's really compelling. Agreed. And I, I, I think it's, it's pretty close to 25. The 25 seconds is 25 pages long. So oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was great just to interview him about it and, and be able to talk to him about it. It was just really, it's an awesome story and the lessons he's learned from it. Now it's changed him. It's just, that's just, that's human drama at its finest. I mean, you could make a movie out of that. Certainly. All right. Well now over to you, Ron, what's number five? Okay, I have to say, I really like this book. It's called Sense and Sensibility, Sense being C-E-N-T-S. It's by Gary Saul Morrison and Morton Shapiro. The subtitle is What Economists Can Learn from the Humanities. Basically, Ed, they're they're saying, you know, what's the difference between the humanities and economics? It comes down to stories. And these guys as well take on behavioral economics. They say behavioral economics suffers from the same defect that traditional, you know, homo economicus economics suffers from because you don't need stories to understand their models. There's no place for surprise in rational choice economics nor behavioral economics. And they make a really great point that the great novelists, you know, Tolstoy, Solzhenitsyn, I mean, go down the list, right? The great novelists understand people better than any social scientist who ever lived. And it's just a really compelling book, making a strong argument for the humanities. You know, Drucker wrote books on that business is basically the humanities. I've been saying since we've done this show that we could probably do society better if we close the business schools and just had everybody transfer over to humanities. And this book just reinforces that point. And I just really thoroughly enjoyed it. 
So, sounds like a really good one, Ron. I did I did not read that book, but I, you we, you did talk to me about it on a number of occasions, and I I do like this notion that it's about the stories that we can tell. And I think you're right. I think part of the problem is both behavioral and and neoclassical economics do really talk a lot about numbers. Ultimately, we'd, it has to fit into the model. And even even the behavioral e- economics has its models that it falls in love with, you know, and how, how many different effects are there, Ron, right? You know, yeah. Several oh, geez. Like, I, I dozens, know. right, that they've identified. And like, well, how, how the hell are you supposed to know when to apply each of these different effects? You know, it's, it's like, it's like no. <laughs> and and you know I love what Russ Roberts always says. You know we can't we can't model dignity. We can't measure dignity. And you, what they they point out is that the great thing about these novelists is they develop a character so well that you you as a reader climb into their head, mm-hmm. and and you live through all their contradictions. You know these you know humans are messy. Life is messy, and there's not just simple models now. In the economist defense, no model is supposed to be the, the territory, right? The map's not the territory. We model things to simplify them. All scientists mm-hmm. do that. But when you're talking about human behavior, it is true that a novelist has much better insight <laughs> than I think some of these economists, even the behavioral economists, who think they have a better grasp on why we do what we do. And I'm not sure they are. This book made me far more skeptical. And I was already in the skeptic column with respect to some behavioral insights and now I'm probably more so. Yep. On both sides. Okay. All right. Now we're going to do like this, like a, was a snake draft, Ron. So now you have to give your number four and we'll bounce back and forth. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you're making this hard. Uh, okay. I, I love this guy, Atul Gawande and he, he's written the checklist manifesto. He's a surgeon. He's written some great books about being a surgeon. And this book he wrote is called Being Mortal. Being mm. Mortal, Illness, Medicine, and What Matters in the End. And, and look, this is not, it, 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 it's kind of a downer. I mean, he's talking about his dad's death and he's talking about the end of life. But, and it sounds like a terrible topic, but it's, it's inspiring in many ways. And he says, you know, basically doctors are taught how to save lives, but not how to tend to their demise, right? He points out that in 1945, most deaths occurred in the home. By the 1980s, just 17% did. By 2010, 45% of people died in hospice. And we're rejecting the institutionalized version of, of aging and death, but haven't yet established a new norm. And he wants to forge a new relationship with doctors rather than the old as you know, the, where the doctor's paternalistic, right? The doctor knows best. And then you can kind of have an informative, informative relationship with your doctor where they tell you the facts and figures and the rest is up to you. He says, neither type of those relationships work. He says he wants an interpretive doctor who helps patients determine what they want. You know, what is most important to you? What are your worries? It's kind of like a shared decision framework. And he's a big uh, proponent of hospice care and independent living for the aged. So rather than just putting people in rest homes where the biggest worry is risk and security, you know, he says, we allow our children to take more risks than they do people that live in rest homes, you know, independent living where they can lock their own doors and eat when they want. So they don't feel regimented like they're in prison. 
And it, it's just an incredibly thought-provoking book and just beautifully. He's such a beautiful writer. And he also talks about his dad's last days, which I found really touching. And uh, just for a surgeon to be this reflective, it was just a great read. It's such a com- complicated issue, right, Ron? We're, 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 and I think we, we have now known how to preserve life to a certain extent, but are we really preserving the, a, 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 the, the goodness of life? You know, the, the end of life for a lot of people is, is just extended on for no, no good reason other than we, we don't want to see them depart. And right. I think that's a, it's a huge challenge for us to, to accept, to accept that, to truly embrace that and accept that. That's exactly right. And he takes that issue on head on. And it's just really interesting. This book makes you reflect on every page that you read through it. And it's, it's just a wonderful read. Highly recommend it. Cool. All right. Well, we're up against our first break. I want to remind you that you can get, get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. They're out on the com. You can see show notes and previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an X to an X to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are talking the best books of 2019. I should say the best books that we read in 2019, Ron, because we, <laughs> all of these books didn't necessarily come out in 2019. In fact, I know at least two of mine did did not, and actually came out a little bit earlier. And this this is one of them. We're up to my number four book, bouncing back and forth. And this is book. The book is called "The Coddling of the American Mind." Mm. 
how yeah. good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. And uh, I just, this is by Greg Lukanoff and Jonathan Haidt. Um, I think it's Haidt, how you pronounce it, H-A-I-D-T. Right, right. And we've read, we've, we've talked about some of his books previously, right? Didn't he write um, um, the, 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 the Elephant and the Rider one? Wasn't that him as well? I think that might have been him. But anyway. Might have been him. Yep. Yep. Yeah. What I love about this book is it is it's it's in alignment with a lot of the things that you and I have talked about, especially with regard to Howard Hansen's work and mm. Mm-hmm. what we do from a leadership perspective. So have you read this? Have you read I it? I haven't. I've listened to so many podcasts with him. Okay. But, but both of those <laughs> authors, like Jonah had them on, Russ Roberts, a, a couple of, I yeah. think, uh, in Common Knowledge. I, it, I mean, I felt like I've read the books just listening to these in-depth, in-depth discussions. But yeah, no, I know it's a real thought-provoking it is. It is a thought-provoking book, and, and and I would I would say this. Yeah, you're probably good. You you can you, put this one way down on the anti-library if it's out there, because it, yeah. I think you can glean a lot of it from 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 the interviews. But just the the gist of it is basically what they call the 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 three untruths or bad ideas. Mm-hmm. And here here are the bad ideas. Number one, the untruth of fragility, uh, meaning mm-hmm. what doesn't kill you will make you weaker. Mm-hmm. The, the untruth of emotional reasoning, which is always trust your feelings. Right. And the untruth of us versus them, which is life is a battle between good people and evil people. Hmm. And what I, the, what's, what's most interesting, I, I think, is the way that he sets uh, uh, us up for, or they, not he, the way they set us up for what, what's happening in American politics today and in, with, with young people that we they're they're fragile that we have to they have to be they have to be we have to protect them in any possible way and the problem is he says if this is if if this is what you're doing to to try to help people you're actually doing the complete opposite of what should be done which and then this goes to the concept of of anti-fragile right which is te- you, we we get stronger when we're tested with challenges Sure. And to protect people from all challenges is only going to make them weaker. Yep. And, and, and it was really eye-opening. So the way that they then posit this, and I'll just jump to the kind of the end, is in their three psychological principles. So he says that what they call the psychological principle, the wisdom, and then the great untruth. And you see how these contrast with one another. Is, is the psychological principle is that young people are anti-fragile. The wisdom is prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the great untruth is that which doesn't kill you makes you weaker. The next two, just to sum this up, are, is the psychological pr- principle is we are all prone to emotional reasoning and confirmation bias, right? We know that. And that, But their, their wisdom in this is your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts, unguarded, but once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or mother, as you, know, you can help yourself, right? So, and this is contrasted with the always just trust your feelings. And then the last one, which really I think made me think the most, and he takes you through all of these different, the, the ins and outs of this principle is we are all prone to dichotomous thinking and tribalism. Right. And then the, the wisdom is the dividing li- or the line dividing good and evil cuts through the, the heart of every human being mm-hmm. as opposed to the untruth with life is a battle between good people and evil people. So the dividing line is not 
not we, they. The dividing line is inside you. Us. Yeah. <laughs> I think Solskjaer Heaton makes that point. That's his line. Oh, is it? Yes. Pretty sure. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that sounds great. And, you know, it wasn't it Robert Nozick's book, Man, Enemy, and State, where he talked about having a machine or maybe it was a belt that would you put, would you put on a belt on your kid that was able to solve all of his or her problems, right? right? There'd be no struggles. And, and most people say, no, you know, that would be mm-hmm. insane. You, yep. you, you want to struggle. You, I mean, humans are designed to struggle through things and not have a clear path. And yeah, the whole anti-fragile thing. So that, I love yeah. that. Yeah, it's good. It was good stuff. Good stuff. All right, so I'm back up again, right? Yep, you I'm bet. Gonna do number, I'm going to do number three, and this uh, this is one I'm sure you didn't read, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and this is this this book is 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 actually a second edition of a book that I read probably 20 years ago, and it's it's by a guy by the name of Thomas Day D A Y, and the book is called Why Catholics Can't Sing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I read this book as I started that back this year singing in my church choir, and I did not realize that he had updated the book because I had read it a long time ago. The, the, there's, there's such great nuance in here, but what, the, the biggest challenge that he lays down is that it, the Second Va- Vatican Council destroyed some liturgical practices that, in the author's view, were actually pretty good, but they, 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 we got stuck in a lot of ways. And far too many of, of the time when you go into a Catholic church, especially what you'll see with regard to the, any kind of the music that goes on is people who are more performing than they are leading others in song. The mainline Protestant churches really have this down. You know, they, they have the, their, their old traditional hymns that they sing over and over and over. There's, there's thousands of them. So there is a variety, but they're easy to sing. You can pick up a hymnal. If you have just a basic ability to even read music, you can follow them. There's probably, you know, in any, any song, there's, there's maybe a difference of five or six notes in terms of, of difficulty and challenge to sing. Whereas some of the new music that's written for the Catholic church has all of this syncopated stuff. And unless you can file, you know, a double dotted quarter note, know what that's supposed to mean. You can't possibly sing it right. You know, it's all got all of these triplets and stuff in it. And of course the range is, is worse than the national anthem of the United States. Mm. Um, and then, so it's no, it's no wonder that that Catholics oftentimes just go in there and they just don't sing. They just wait. Uh, coupled with the fact that there's been this big movement inside churches to not put in choir lofts, which he says is completely insane. Because if you don't put in a choir loft, it means that you have to have the amplified voice for singing. Mm. And if you have the amplified voice for singing, you're less likely to sing because it's it sounds like the sound is coming at you, not from the back of you. There was much wisdom in putting the the choir loft in the back of the church so that the so that the the, the voices fell over you. And it's sort of like you know even if you can't even, even if you quote can't sing, everyone sings in the car with the with it with it with it with, it, with the the music blaring. Everyone, right, right, because you because you sound because you're just you're just mixing in and it doesn't matter, right. And, and he says, that's what the old choir loft sound used to do. But now, unfortunately, what it does is get in the way. 
right? And with, with the, the, the amplification coming from the front of the church does not allow you to feel that. So it was really just interesting from a cultural standpoint that, look, there's some, there's some really stupid things that, that organizations that have been around a long time uh, can fall prey to. So anyway, it was, it was, it was, a, it was just different for me. Yeah, that's great. No, I love that idea of the music, you know, just wafting over you or surrounding you from the back. That makes total sense to me. It's like mm-hmm. when you go see a symphony or something, you know, you just you enjoy it when you just when the music just envelops you. You just mm-hmm. let it, you know, just let it kind of roll over you. It's it's really interesting. Yep. All right, so that's my number three for the year. I know I'm not I'm not on your list, right? <laughs> not on not on my list. No, nope, you got me. You got me. This one, I believe, is on your list because I think I forced you to read this because I, <laughs> I, I found it great. Uh, the Prosperity Paradox by yep. Clayton Christensen. Yep. And it was the uh, subtitles, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. Now, it, we've been talking that on this show forever about alleviating poverty is not the same thing as creating prosperity, right? We can't end poverty by focusing on poverty, right? We need to understand wealth and how wealth is created because that's the only known antidote to poverty. This book never makes that point. However, what this book does do is explain how to create wealth by creating market, creating innovations that are sustainable. Mm -hmm. And he lays out three types of innovations, sustaining, which are improvements to existing solutions. So, you know, Lipton comes out with a new tea flavor, Camry keeps improving, you know, Toyota keeps improving the Camry every year or whatever, but these don't represent major growths in the economy. Uh, Then there's efficiency innovation, which is when we do more with fewer resources, usually because of process innovations, these tend not to create jobs, um, but they they do free up um, cash for future investments. He really looked at market creating innovations this is where countries create new markets that serve people um, who, for whom either no products existed or existing products were uh, not affordable or accessible, right? So, he, and he gave many, many examples of entrepreneurs in Africa and other countries that were just coming up with these massive innovations in, in a wide array of industries, healthcare and telecommunications and all of that. And he said, this is how you build prosperity. It's not through NGOs. It's not through charity. It's through market creating innovations that actually create markets and expand economic activity. This allows the country to build the road and the infrastructure and, and other things. Um, you know, this is, this is how it works. And even for kids that get educated, college educated, you know, where are they going to be employed? this is why a lot of educated people leave, you know, the whole brain drain thing, because there's no jobs to go back to in their, in their home country. So they, they go somewhere else. And I really appreciated this book for those insights. And he backed it up with so many different examples. Now, this is not any different than what, you know, father Sirico talks about or Rabbi Daniel Lappin or George Gilder or Michael Novak, but it fits in with that pantheon of, of scholars who have looked at how, how do we create wealth and sustainable wealth, not just helping them, you know, with a pair of socks or a pair of shoes every time I buy one. That's not enough. That's not going to do it. So I, I really appreciated this book from that perspective. And as I recall, Ron, wasn't this the one that, uh, that was the, there's the co-author, um, Afosa Ojomo, 
And, yes, I think that's right. Yes, right. And did and and he it has it, it even it opens with the story of the well. Is that right? Yeah, Where he he, he okay. went to Africa or someplace to dig wells and. And yeah, it's all great. You have this new well for the village, but then when it breaks, nobody can fix it. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of great insights like that throughout this book, The Prosperity Paradox. Highly recommend it. And, and Clayton Christensen's high on my list for management thinkers. You know, yeah. he's like right under Peter Drucker. He's in there with Gary Hamill and Henry Mintzberg and a few others that I really, really admire. He's just a really bright guy. It's the only good thing to come out of Harvard in a long time. <laughs> yep. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, well, I guess, wow, that takes us to our break. Hey, Ed, we got a new website that uh, our social media maven, Greg Trico, told us about ratethispodcast.com. That's right. Ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE. There you go. Yeah. So you can go out and rate us there. We'd still like you to rate us on iTunes. Either way, we'll read it. And uh, if you want to get a hold of Ed or me, you can send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about the best books that Ed and I read in 2019, and uh, the top five. I've been through the first three of mine, and my second one, Ed, is I think this is probably in your anti-library because I've been bugging you for years to read this. <laughs> and we have had the author on the show, uh, episode number 25, and of course, it's the great Thomas Sowell. Ah, and the book is a book I read many, probably two decades ago, I don't know, sometime in the 90s or something. 
and it's a conflict of visions. He has expanded it. So there's a revised edition out there and it's, it's just phenomenal. I, I, you know, it, if you ever wondered how two people can look at the world differently, whether you're talking about a conservative and a liberal or a socialist and a, you know, free marketer or whatever, he, he sums it up into this conflict of visions and he basically uses the framework of the constrained view of mankind and the unconstrained view. And the constrained view kind of ties to original sin and, you know, I'm not saying it's religious because Thomas Sowell really doesn't necessarily write about religion, but that we're fallen, that we're imperfect in any institution or society that we create is therefore, you know, it came from crooked timber, so it's going to be flawed. And the unconstrained basically says we can remake people, we can make things better, we can we can perfect humanity here on earth. And those are the two paradigms. But a couple of other things he points out, Ed, that I, that I just think are great. He says, a vision is not a paradigm. It's not a theoretical model of causation. It's an almost extinct, instinctive sense of what things are and how they work. A vision may lead to a theory. However, opposing paradigms in science do not persist for centuries as alternative paradigms do from constrained versus unconstrained visions. Scientific paradigms tend to succeed each other in history, right? Not coexist through the centuries. Um, so a chemist can throw out a batch of chemicals and start from scratch, but we can never know what Germany would be like today if there had been no Hitler, right? Evidence is not as decisive in social visions. Evidence need not be falsified in order to be evaded. Evidence is usually dismissed as simplistic in science a simplistic explanation is preferred to a more complex one with no greater accuracy. Malthus's theory of population began as a constrained vision of humanity, but it was later adapted by those with the unconstrained vision. Uh, so just, I, I love that. It's so true that, you know, in science, one paradigm replaces the other, but yet we still have people arguing for socialism, mm -hmm. you know, even though the evidence we do have for it, it's to me pretty compelling, but they don't see it that way. And that's how these two visions can carry on to, into the future because a vision is not a paradigm. It's not subject to an empirical test. Correct. Yeah. I, and I de definitely still in my anti-library haven't had a chance. It's really dense, Ron, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it, it is, but, but, but Ed, it's not, it's not turgid. It's not like, like the, the fifth discipline book that we kind of railed against. Oh, right, right. <laughs> uh, it, it's well-written. He's got lots of interesting examples, but yeah, I mean, it's not a beach read. You, you've <laughs> got, you've got to pay attention when you're reading it. But just like with most of Soul's other works, it's so compelling mm -hmm. and so, so logical. And it, and it is. It's like chewing on nails, no mm -hmm. doubt about it. But it, I think it's a fantastic framework for understanding how two people can see the world differently. Well, you know, it reminded me of when you just talking, reminded me of a, of a book that I, I dabbled in this year, but I don't think I completely got through it. And um, now the title is escaping me, but the author is Arnold Kling. Oh, right. The, the language of the three languages. The three, yeah. Of, Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Of the politics, language of politics something, or something. Yeah. yeah. 
Yep. And, and you know, because he's he's got this this idea, and of course, he's, instead of two constrained versus unconstrained, he's got a three things. Is that he said you know, people of the left, liberals tend to look at things as uh, the oppressor versus oppressed. Yep. That uh, conservatives tend to look at the world as uh, barbarian versus um, is civilization, something like that. Right. Right. Yes. Right. And then libertarians tend to view the the world in ter- terms of you know. Fr- uh, f- freedom versus versus con- yeah yeah versus fascism or, or yeah coercion coercion yeah yeah and yeah. The, and and his argument and then this is so I just like to, curious as to your thought as to how this would work work into to, to Soul's argument is that that that's you you have one of those three different biases that you're looking at the world at. Mm-hmm. And it just it 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 just that then is a framework for how you see other things. Now, what Soul seems to be arguing is, all right, there's these two, and one of them's got to win ultimately. Whereas Kling is saying, well, there's these three, and there's these three, <laughs> and right, the- right. <laughs> now, I, I'm not sure Soul's going to say they're one of them has to win. He that he's kind of explaining that they're not like scientific theories. They don't, you know, like we know the Earth's not flat, so that theory gets replaced with a better one. He says that doesn't happen in, in, with visions, right? Mm-hmm. You've got the constrained vision, you've got the unconstrained vision, and 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 I don't think he makes any predictions. But you know, I got the sense that he thinks that's just going to continue. That's just that's how it's going to be. Um, gotcha. It's it's probably more meta than Arnold Kling. And and by the way, Ed, I think Jonathan Haidt wrote a book very similar to this, explaining people's uh, political views. I, and I forget mm. the name of that book, but that was one I did read by Jonathan Haidt uh, because Rory Sutherland really likes him and he recommended him. Um, that also might be the writer and the elephant where that yeah. story came from. Um, but I, I just, it, this book is very, very thought provoking and the expanded uh, version, which is a little bit thicker than the, than the original um does fill it out with many, many more examples that, that you'll go, oh, yeah, that makes so much sense. Mm. And so I think it's more of a meta explanation than Arnold Kling, but I still find it really useful. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, speaking of Roy Sutherland, <laughs> you, <laughs> my number two book of the year is, of course, Alchemy. Yes. And we, we, we don't won't spend too much time on this, just a few minutes, because we did interview Rory once, well, tried to tw- two other times. So we talked about his book once. We talked about Rory Ryder Friday once. And then we finally had Rory on, which was great. Um, but but you know, if you just look at the, the reviews of this book and realize that, you know, Robert, Robert Caldini, Matt Ridley, N- Nassim Nicholas Taleb and Jules Goddard all loved it. Yeah. So, it, I mean, those that's a, that's a pretty diverse group of people right there. Uh, so if it's, if, it, if it's, you got to pick up the alchemy and give it a read. And the thing that has been haunting me where, and what I've seen over and over again happening in different businesses that I've talked to is best described in the metaphor that Rory uses about the soccer player and penalty kicks. Yes. I and so I don't know if we talked about that with him because it was one of the obvious ones. But but I, so the metaphor is this: is that it, it, a soccer player, it, when they do a penalty kick at the end of a game, whether or whether it's you know they because they got a penalty shot or because it's at the at the end and they're they're doing a shootout, if they want to to score, their best chance of scoring 
is to actually just kick the ball straight. Yeah. Because the goalie has to, has to guess he, they, you know, he or she has got to guess left or right. So all of, all of the goalies, what they do is they just, they kind of guess and they jump one way or the other. And if they jump the way that you kick the ball, well, then they have a chance at saving it. Now there's still a possibility that it gets by them, but it's still a chance, but none of them stay in the middle. None of them just stand there. <laughs> yep. But nobody kicks the ball down the middle because if they did and the goalie just didn't move, they would look like a complete idiot. Yeah, yeah. So the ri- so the risk of looking like a complete idiot is what, what keeps them from, from kicking the ball down the center. And gosh, if, if I haven't in the, in the last year seen so many examples of that in business where there are people who, who are just not willing to take that even small risk because, well, I might look stupid. Yeah, but it's your best chance. <laughs> right, right. It's, it, it, it's a form of defensive decision-making, isn't it, that he talks about? That's correct. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Now that, you know, he was on episode number 267, Ed, uh, Rory, and, and episode number nine, by the way, he was, right. almost, I think he was our second guest, um, you know, behind Deirdre McClowski. And he was also on my list of, of certainly top 10 books that I read alchemy. Uh-huh. And so was survivor's obligation, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but that is a, that is a fantastic book. Uh, and just, there's so many, there's examples after example that are just so good in there. All right. Well, Ron, we've only got about a, a, a minute and a half left before our break, but I want to start talking about my number one book just so that okay. we can get a little bit more time. If that's okay with you. Cause sure, I know sure. you have a number one. No, book no, I know because in. your number one book is difficult. <laughs> my number one book is extraordinarily difficult. Yes. So you do know what my number one book is. I, I do. We talked a little bit about it. Yeah. And so the, those, I, I think we've talked about it on bonus episodes, but never on the actual show. And the book is by Donald Hoffman, who is a uh, researcher and a biologist and a deep thinker out of University of California at Irvine. And the book is called The Case Against Reality. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, and, and Rory, Rory referenced this book when he was on. Yes, it. yes, he did. He did reference it. But well, I had I had run into Donald Hoffman a couple of years ago before even Rory mentioned him. Yes, and had watched a couple of his TED talks uh, about different subjects, and 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 had re- read one of his previous books, which which is uh, a, a, just about human sight because he's a biologist that studies studies human human vision, but it was is his insight into vision that led him to this very interesting thesis. And the, the, the first thing that I'll, that I'll say, he, he, he bases this on what he calls universal Darwinism. And that is a, applying the, the biological theory, not just to biology, but to everything. Not, and not to, to it, it, because his, his theory does not assume the existence of physical objects at all. Right. He's just saying that that Darwinism, the the survival of the most adaptable is is a is a theory that does not is not require biology. Mm -hmm. And 
it, and I think we, we've borne that out in our work with with uh, companies, right? We, we've applied some of the, so the the survival of the most adaptable applies to business as well. So let's just we'll start there, and when we come back from the break, I'll I'll give you give you the rest of this because it, there's there's an incredible insight, and at the end, it's a mind blowing conclusion. But I want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to ask tsoe at verisage.com. There is of course the Patreon site, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can subscribe and get this show commercial free and also our bonus episodes where we do go more in depth into many of the topics that we talk about, as well as have sometimes other guests on. And then of course, uh, we, we also um, do not have, you do not have to listen to the Greg Kite commercials. So right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And one of our favorite shows of the year, Best Books of 2019. And we're talking about our number one books. I set up the in the, the previous segment, my, my best book, which is Donald Hoffman's Case Against Reality. And I want to make sure that I get Ron's book in here. And I got to be careful because I could probably spend the next 10 minutes, Ron, just talking about <laughs> this book. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to make this as succinct as possible. So, so Hoffman then goes on to posit what he calls the FBT theorem, which is the fitness before truth. And what he's suggesting is that evolution it has us evolved to, to fitness before truth, meaning adaptability and it, rather than the truth. And of course, the example that he does based on the fact that he's a, a vision guy is human vision 
has is adapted to see the things that allow us to continue to survive better but we only see a tiny fraction of the electromagnetic spectrum. We don't see x-rays. We don't see microwaves. Even though these things can kill us, they're just less likely to than the other things that we do see, like, you know, tigers in the wild. Right, right. Okay. So, so that's the, the, the next. So if, if you buy into this notion that, okay, that we, we, we evolve or human beings evolve to, to, to be f- to, to for fitness rather than truth, well, then what we're seeing isn't really the truth. It's certainly not the, the complete truth. And he says, the truth won't make you free. It will make you extinct, right? So what he then goes on to say is that if that's true, if you, if you, if you buy into that, then the next layer on this is that our, 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 what we perceive is, is actually like an interface, and he calls this the ITP, the interface theory of perception, that our reality or that what we perceive as reality is really just an interface, like the interface in a desktop. And that, you know, it, we, we all know that the little icon on your desktop for a folder isn't really a folder, uh, but you, you don't go searching for the blue folder. It's not really there, but we take it as real because it's useful to us. Uh, we also, and, and so people say, well, all right, so Donald, if, if that's the case, were you going to stand in front of the train and it virtually kill you? He says, no, <laughs> he says, Sim- similar. I'm also not going to take the blue folder and put and, and, and drop it onto the, the, the trash bin, right? And then empty my trash bin because I know that all my stuff's going to be gone. <laughs> Right. Nope. So the the interface leads you to where where you you. He says, "I must take my senses seriously. Therefore, uh, but but must I take them literally? No. Logic requires neither nor justifies this move. So the it, the the interface theory of perception does not deny that there's an objective reality. It only denies that our pers- perceptions do not describe that reality, whatever that is. So uh, so so then he goes on to say, well. We've we've spent eons trying to to derive using the scientific method a top down structure of why everything works. Right. This is the this is Stephen Hawking's uh, trying to find a theory of everything. Mm -hmm. Right. He says, but this is never going to work because because you can't do this from the top down. So you have to approach it from the other side. And his other side that he had the insight is what he calls the conscious agent theory, which is every aspect of consciousness can be molded by conscious agents. So it's a, it is a bottom up theory of consciousness. So it's not a top down mm-hmm. our bits and bytes, uh, bits and bytes or, and, and our atoms, we, we can't find our consciousness by arguing atoms create consciousness. It's it, we, we've, we've lost that. Right. But can but can we argue that instead our consciousness creates the atoms? Hmm. And he seems to be going an awful long way to convincing me that he's really onto something here, and it scares the crap out of me, quite frankly. But it's pretty dang interesting. Wow. Yeah, it's in my anti library. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm intimidated to read it. But, uh, yeah, I, I know, I know you asked George Gilder about it and I think he had issues with it, but you know, he did not read it, but he did say, he did say that he would have issues with it if such and such, 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 but I, you know, like if our consciousness wasn't coming from a higher order Yeah, and he makes no argument either way. He makes no argument either way, which I'm sure Gilder would, would not be happy about, but you know, right. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, that's fascinating. It is. Okay. So number one book, what do you got? Okay. Ed, number one book is, I don't want to call it a third edition, but it's the experience economy by Joseph Pine and James Gilmore. Now we had Joe Pine on our show, episode number 34. And the experience economy originally came out in 1997. And then they updated it with a second edition, like in 2011. This one, however, I would say is, although it's got some repetitive things, it's, it's still new. And the subtitle to this one is different than the first two. It's competing for customers' time, attention, and money. And I think it's worth the read. And one of the th- questions he asks is, are your customers increasing or, decre- or decreasing the amount of time they spend with you? meaning your business, do you have to exert more, ever more marketing and sales effort to gain the attention of customers or do the experiences you offer create robust demand in and of themselves? Time is the key characteristic that distinguishes experiences from services. Services are delivered on demand while experiences are revealed over a duration of time. And I love this line. Services are about time well saved, right? The doctor can do things better than you can on your own, or the accountant can do your taxes quicker than you can, while experiences are about time well spent. And by the way, I would say the same thing for transformations, which they Mm -hmm. also go into a little bit more depth in this book and, and flush out some more examples than they did in the previous ones. And he points out, and this is fascinating, Americans now spend more money in restaurants and bars than they do in grocery stores. So that's interesting. Uh, And he also lays this out, and I love this framework. Services insure, I-N-S-U-R-E, they secure payment in the event of a loss, right? Experiences usher, Secure confidence, encouragement, trust, or feelings of satisfaction. Transformations ensure, E-N-S-U-R-E, secure event, situation, or outcome. And, you know, we always talk about, whether you're talking about concierge medicine, the insurance aspect, price of the portfolio, all these different things. It's really about insurance, not so much assurance or insurance, but insurance, E-N-S-U-R-E. And he makes that distinction. The thing I didn't like about the book, Ed, but that you might, is it goes into great depth about theatrical theory, <laughs> about theater. <laughs> theater. And because mm-hmm. they're t- in the experience economy section, you know, where they're talking about the experience economy. The thing I liked most about it was the transformation discussion, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that's got the most relevance um, but it was a good book. It's an interesting way to look at the world. In other words, if we're going to do timesheets, we should do them on our customers. How much time do our customers spend with our firms? And it really got me thinking about the concierge medicine because as, as we point, as we asked Paul Thomas or I asked him, I think he, he's got to retrain his patients to spend more time with him. He doesn't just want to see you when you're sick. He wants to see you when you're healthy. And, you know, that means the patients need to spend more time with him so he can, you know, take care of their financial health better. And it's kind of the same 
with offering transformation. So I just, I just think the Pine and Gilmore book, you talk about a business book that stood the test of time. This is, it's on its 23rd year. And I think the framework is still right on. And, and improved in terms of the, the, the thinking. Yeah. Tweaked a little bit. I mean, not, not dramatically, but tweaked enough to where you should take note. Hmm. Excellent stuff. Well, I certainly look forward to, to to getting that on my list. Maybe I'll I'll have I'll cheat and have that on my list for 2020, and we can revisit it next year. Another book Ed that was on my list, but since we had him on the show, I didn't I didn't put it on my list. Was subscribed. Of course, of so, course. Although was that 2019? You know, I think it was 2018. It might have been. Might I have think been. it was 2018. I, yeah. I, these years are just running together. I'll tell you. Uh, no, this is all right. Well, so we what's got, coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we are going to talk about more metric mania and an article that you found in the Harvard Business Review and that we need to pick apart and talk a lot about. Fantastic. I look really look forward to that. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise. Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Please join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs>